There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So how did we as a population allow the coronavirus to happen, for it to spread so widely and wildly, for us to be seemingly so unprepared for a disaster of this magnitude? Every health system, it seems, just doesn't have the equipment it needs. Policymakers seemingly have been making calls on the fly on how to support the population and keep the economy alive. But are they making the right decisions? And how will life change when all of this is over? Will we have learned anything? I'm Phil Dobby. Nick Hanauer is joining us today as well, along with Steve Keen, of course, on this free edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, geez, today 3.3 million people are now filing for unemployment support in the United States. That's up from 281,000 a week before. That's a sign of the economic impact of the coronavirus. It's going to get worse, of course, the longer it goes on. So to discuss the impacts, the reasons and the outcomes, uh, Nick Hanauer is joining us, a venture capitalist who's made some shrewd investments over the years, like Amazon, for example, one of the, the few companies that might actually come out quite well from this crisis and steve keen of course uh, we're getting close to 200 podcasts now most are only available in full to supporters of steve on his patreon site but this one is available to everyone along with all his written posts well they're all free on the site so it's worth swinging by his site at patreon.com forward slash prof steve keen even if you're not a supporter but if you help steve uh, out with uh, a bit of support for his research then you'll have hours of listening waiting for you but that's enough about steve nick tell us about you you are an unapologetic capitalist uh, but you also say modern economic policy is just plain wrong which is obviously why we've got you on this podcast but let's let's go back to 2014 first of all that's when you wrote the pitchforks are coming for us plutocrats uh, you can go searching for it if you haven't read it on politico.com uh, you wrote about how the income divide was widening and the future you saw was pitchforks we're basically heading to 18th century france before the revolution so before we talk about what we face today with the coronavirus maybe kick off by telling us more about what made uh, well first of all how you made your money and then what made you become such a complete critic of the the concentration of wealth that's become such a key factor of modern society Oh, golly, in a, in, a, in a couple of minutes. You know, I, I mean, I grew up in a family business. My dad had a, a small uh, home furnishings manufacturing company that, uh, you know, I had the good fortune to sort of grow up in work, working in and, uh, you know, very supportive parents. And it was a small business, a tiny mm-hmm. little thing, but, we, but my brother and I turned it into a big company uh, over time. And um, because my dad was very, very supportive, he uh, allowed us to go out and do a bunch of other entrepreneur- entrepreneurial things too. And um, again, I was very, very lucky because I had, a, I had an early interest in the internet and just happened to know Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and um, he ended up sending his stuff to our house in Seattle from New York. And I became the first investor in Amazon.com. And from that, and obviously made a shit ton of money doing that and then started a mess of other uh, technology companies, including what became a, one of the largest internet advertising companies in the world, Aquantive, and 
and then you know helped start a couple of dozen other companies uh, across a really broad range of industries. But you know, I've always sort of had a interest in civic and political things. And I, I don't know. I mean, I just think if you're being sort of psychologically honest, if you have the capacity to be psychologically honest, it's very hard to look at the concentration of wealth that has occurred over the last 40 years in the West and not think, well, that's not going to work out very well in the long term. Uh, you just have mm. to be an idiot not to think that. I, I, mm. It doesn't seem to be a stretch. It doesn't seem heroic. It just seems obvious to me. And that in particular, it's not going to work out for the people at the top um, who are inevitably going to come tumbling down too. And so, uh, you know, I've been on a you know, for at least 10 years, uh, been on this sort of um, mission to try to get people to see that we can have a different arrangement and, and, that, 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 uh, and that there are countries that have a different arrangement and they're generally better off and more secure and less uh, polarized and, and less fragile. So do you get this question asked a lot? Isn't it easy for you to take that position when you made so much money from, from investments and, 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 and what are you doing to do? distribute that wealth? Well, I mean, you know, I'm now a full-time civic activist and I'm using all of that money essentially to try to create the kind of political and economic change that I think the world needs. Um, and the, the most scalable, effective and leveraged way to do that is to change the laws which um, frame up economic policy. By the way, I should mention to everybody, uh, if the internet seems a bit dodgy today, it's because we are talking in three different time zones. I'm in the UK. Uh, Nick, you are in North America. And uh, Steve, you are in Thailand. Uh, but let's, we'll come to Steve in a second. Let's look at the situation we find ourselves in today, though, Nick. I mean, this is a, a failure of capitalism, isn't it? We've, be, we've become so obsessed now, haven't we, with making money. We haven't been spending money in places where we uh, needed it to be. So we, we just haven't managed risk. Well, absolutely not. And, uh, you know, right now, what it means when you characterize government as uh, the problem and not the solution for 40 years, and when the watchword of the Republican Party is that you want government, you want to shrink government down small enough so you can drown it in a bathtub. Uh, th those are literally the words of one of the leaders on the right, Grover Norquist. Um, and to my knowledge, every single Republican uh, congressperson and senator has signed his no taxes pledge. And as a consequence, certainly in the United States, the federal government has been virtually helpless in terms of responding to this crisis. Now, that, that relative lack of capability, of course, is compounded by having a president idiot in charge, <laughs> you know, and so any, any difficult situation will be made much worse when you have a person of as limited uh, capacity to deal with something like this is well, as President Trump. It, it's all going to be over by Easter, he's saying. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, no, no, no. And so <laughs> when I mean, you have... I, I 
a, a very stupid person and uh, a very um, dishonest person in charge, mm. of course, that makes things all the worse. Yeah, but even if we had so, big government rather than small government, I wonder how you can mitigate risks like this, uh, something that's just, just come out of left field. Because, I mean, if you look at airlines, for example, who really uh, are going to struggle after all of this, if you look at the uh, the annual reports, the risk section of, the, of, of these airlines, they'll list the risks as things like currency exchange, industrial relations, government policy, oil prices which is the least of their worries right now, of course. No mention of global pandemics, which could wipe half of these these airlines out. No, of course. And to be clear, nobody can predict a pandemic, right? Like this is a serious global threat uh, that wasn't in particular anyone's fault. And, and the scientists have been warning us every year for dozens of years that this was going to happen eventually. Bill Gates did a, actually was in the audience at TED when Bill Gates made a wonderful speech about this. I think it was five or six years ago, uh, predicting a pandemic and and saying that we should prepare ourselves. But of course you can't know that the pandemic is coming, but you can understand the economy in a way which invites you to to make your society resilient to these sorts mm. of shocks. And that's the opposite of what we have done in the United States. I think Steve so, wants to jump in here. Go ahead. I'd say, and actually, it, it isn't possible to predict when a, a pandemic is going to occur, but it was possible to predict that one is inevitable at some point. And that Absolutely. was done by a that was done by a brilliant book written in 1994, which I happened to read while I was writing my PhD, uh, by a woman called Laurie Bennett, who was then the New York Times medical uh, correspondent. She took a year's, I think she took a year's sabbatical to finish writing the book, but researched over about an eight-year period. So it's an extremely solid piece of research. And it was called, and I quote the title, The Coming Plague. And what yeah. she what she explained was that the uh, we, we are, of course, a vehicle for pathogens. We might think we're, we're highly rational, intelligent, uh, you know, um, species that, that is so smart we invented the digital watch. Uh, but all that a pathogen thinks is we're an interesting vehicle in which to reproduce itself. And her point was that uh, there have been several uh, virus strands which we've competed with over the years, the flu being the most important. I think, from memory, I think she said the flu actually has four strands of DNA, which is, makes it extremely complicated. Um, but she said that what tended to happen with the flu over time is evolution would change one aspect of the, of the, the, vi- the virus. And what matters most to us as hosts is how transmissible it is and how virulent it is. And normally, in the, when, you, when you roll the evolutionary dice, an increase in virulence would go with a, with a fall in transmissibility and vice versa. But she said it's only a matter of time until the dice go in the same direction. So you have an increase in right. virulence and an increase in transmissibility. Now, it didn't actually come out of the flu, but she was saying this inevitably has to happen. So what we've had is a, a, actually a virus related more to what the course of the common cold, uh, which is what the coronaviruses normally do. But we first of all had SARS, then we had MARS, SARS being a, a, a severe, uh, I've got what the ARS stands for here, but then MARS, which came out of the Middle East, which is related, and now this one. And... The, the, the probability, effectively, as time goes on, 
was 100 percent to this right but we didn't know what was we we didn't know exactly what was going to happen though did we so we couldn't we couldn't find an antidote to it before it actually materialized so we we couldn't we we, we, we could find an antidote we could have designed society to make it resilient to cope with this yeah so in what way what would what what would would we have done would we had a much bigger national health service would we have had uh, more more yes we would have yeah bigger health system a national health service with excess capacity. We would deliberately had excess capacity inside there. Uh, sure. We would have potentially trialled doctors to behave the same way the National Guard tra- trains civilians to be military when necessary. We would have produced excessive stocks, excess stocks of masks and ventilators, the sort of thing you know you're going to need when this happens. There would have been warehouses full of the stuff. Uh, we, and, but most importantly, we would have designed a, a, a manufacturing and distribution system which had short supply chains and resilience built into it. We would have emphasised local production over, over globalisation. Uh, and we would have had health systems which were built up to be able to have uh, free or in preferably pay-to-be-monitored health monitoring systems so we can easily identify who's carrying a disease one when it comes out. And we would have an emergency monetary systems in place that when there was a need, and there obviously is a need right now to shut down the financial system in terms of uh, people not only requiring people to have a wage to get paid, not only requiring to have profits, frankly, to get to, to, to get an income, we would have had some form of universal basic income framework established right now. And, of course, we've done the precise opposite of all that, and a large part of why we've done it is my delightful profession of economics, which completely <laughs> ignores any of these issues whatsoever and has walked us, the Dr. Pangloss, right into a crisis which could kill quite a few of the people who got us into the situation in the first place. Mm, yeah. Not to mention the rest of the world. That is an interesting juxtaposition. You mentioned uh, universal basic income there. Uh, in the UK, the Chancellor is giving uh, money to uh, replace wages, 80% of wages, for people who've got a, a job but not doing anything for the self-employed. Uh, Nick, on your side of the uh, of the ocean, uh, we see that uh, this bill, which has now finally mm. been passed, is basically saying, yes, $1,200 into every adult's bank account, uh, 500 in every child's bank account, yeah. Basically, universal right. basic income. That's a step in the right direction, isn't it? Yeah, it is a step it, it, in the right direction. Yeah. Let, let we're coming, we're coming let, from let the wrong Nick direction. Talk, Steve. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I think that I think that it, you know, um, you know, the steps that government, uh, that at least the uh, UK and US government are taking to treat the economic impacts of this are, are, are you know, sort of directionally correct. I, I have a very strong. I have a very strong personal feeling about the way in which we should bail industries out or companies out. But, but put that aside, the question is, what, what kind of economic policy would we have had in place to make th- the inevitability of a crisis like this less impactful on the society? And the simplest answer to that question is, not a set of policies deliberately designed to make a few rich people rich and everyone else fragile, which mm. is what we have done. Mm. Uh, and and so economic the, the, policies... The, the trickle-down effect that's right. is just not trickling right. down. No, no. And, 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 and a set of economic policies that encourage businesses to enrich shareholders at the expense of 
either in uh, either paying workers more or investing in resilience. Mm-hmm. So the the airline industry in our country is the canonical example of that. Yeah. This is an industry which which is in desperate straits today. Uh, but over the last ten years, has devoted ninety six percent of its cash flows to stock buybacks. Yeah. So Delta Airlines oh, is a, a it, big, huge it, example of that, isn't it? Which, right. Yeah. And and th- th- there was no requirement to do this. Mm. They did it because they're greedy, short-sighted assholes. Right. But there's a way to get back those greedy, short-sighted assholes, isn't there? Because they're going to need bailing out. Surely the government would just say, well, okay, tell you what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to buy whatever you need us to buy. We guarantee you're going to buy it, but we're going to buy it from additional shares that you issue. So let's weaken the existing share portfolio because you're going to have to issue a whole lot more shares, perhaps more than you bought back to try and get yourself out of this crisis. And, the, and, and right. you're going to find yourself largely nationalized as a result of it. That's right. And th- this would be my idea. If, if I was in charge, I would create a joint stock company on behalf of every citizen of the United States, everybody who has a social security uh, number. And every dollar of bailout uh, is in the form of preferred shares, Right. Where, 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 where the citizens get a preference above the existing shareholders. And if a company needs to be bailed out, we bail them out, but we own stock and, and you get your share when you retire. Mm. And in that way, uh, the existing shareholders would be crammed down. And uh, when, when the country recovers and it will, uh, everybody benefits. So Not it's, just so we'd stay in that situation. We're in charge. Right. So we'd stay in that situation. Then you wouldn't say, well, okay, once we get over this, because I mean, this is no. what's happening with the banks. Isn't you, it? Own of course, the comp- you own the company for no, you own- in perpetuity. You don't, you don't yeah. sell those shares back. Or, I mean, maybe you do. I mean, you have a set of, set of managers who manage that portfolio over time and try to maximize the value of it. But, uh, but, the, but this is a portfolio owned by American citizens directly. And uh, if the companies do well, then the American citizens do well. Yeah. Before a listener uh, comes out and calls that uh, socialism, I'll remind uh, people of a guy called Louis Kelso, who published a book called The Capitalist Manifesto about 30 years ago and argued for fundamentally to, to, to give um, the American uh, workers an interest in maintaining capitalism by some method by which they were giving shareholders uh, shareholdings in the companies they worked for, so that they were committed to the existence and the res- and the resilience of those companies. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, in Germany, which is hardly a socialist country, you have workers sitting on the on the boards of companies as well. You know, so you've got that uh, uh, part yeah, ownership sure. and uh, and having a say in the way those companies are run as well. So maybe, I mean, maybe that would help. On, on in terms of trying to help uh, individuals right now, uh, cash in the bank seems like the swifter solution doesn't it if it's created from uh, uh, from the issuing of, of government bonds that central banks buy and uh, and never resell and the whole world finds themselves in a situation where they've accrued all this debt which just gets written off um problem solved surely steve well yes and, and this is this is the point i was it, it's given the nature of this virus we know that if we could actually give everybody a four-week break from, from social contact with anybody other than their own immediate circle, we'd kill the virus uh, because yeah. what you get with, we, we know it takes two weeks before uh, you go from infection to obvious symptoms. Uh, and and that, that includes people from testing 
uh, finding no result, still having no particular symptoms that the test still shows they have the virus. So you have everybody staying in with their own family, you know, their, their close family, close friends. Uh, they, you'd need to have effectively military distribution of food, people in hazmat suits dropping food in. So we'd have a, a ration system. We'd be getting we'd be eating military rations for two weeks, uh, uh, for four weeks. In that period, you'd identify which which families and which uh, which groupings do and do not have the virus. The ones that don't have the virus can go back to work. The ones that do have the virus are, are quarantined and isolated. So we and we're down to a, a much smaller number of people uh, that we need to deal with. Uh, we then treat the ones who've got the serious symptoms and hope to give them a chance to recover. Uh, the ones that have come down, we, we again put them into lockdown, uh, give them two weeks. Uh, and at the end of the whole thing, uh, we, we have immunity developed across the entire population. Either some, some people haven't got it, those that have got it have got immunity, and we no longer have the virus spreading effectively, it dies. Uh, that would take a so four to six week period, but it has to be on a complete lockdown of normal human contact. Mm. Now, capitalism can't cope with that. People would be failing if they pay their rents, failing to pay their mortgages, not being able to buy food. Uh, you would have a total co collapse of a free market system. So the free market needs, an, needs basically a parachute. Uh, it's in free fall. It needs a parachute. Mm. We could do it. And then go back to capitalism after six weeks. Right. Yeah. That's so all it are. would take. Okay? Six, six. So we'd have six weeks of socialism. So you can see what it's like, and then we'll go back to capitalism after that when we decide we don't like it very much. Uh, but but are we going to? I, I mean, are, are we going to be able to deliver deliver this efficiently? I wonder, Nick. I mean, if you look in the United States, uh, they are saying they're going to they're, they're going to drop this money. It's almost like helicopter money, one thousand two hundred dollars into everyone's bank account. Uh, Donald Trump seems to think he can do it in the next couple of weeks, but uh, a lot of people doubting that in the UK. The, the approach is uh, sort of a more you know interest-free loans, which is no good to anyone, really. Uh, they need the cash in their bank, and they don't want to accrue this loan. But it's also that issue about how quickly it can uh, it, it can all be delivered. And on, on, on the basis of past performance, uh, not fast enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I do think that borrowing a couple of trillion dollars to put money in people's pockets makes perfect sense. Um but again, I think that the, 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 the bigger issue that we should be discussing, not what governments should be doing, but reflecting on how to not repeat this mistake in the future mm. is, uh, again, and in the United States, what we, what we managed to do over 40 years is make a few people rich and everyone else incredibly fragile economically. And of course, yeah. a cataclysm like this is much easier to deal with if your entire population has economic security uh, uh, savings and positive net worth, right? If everybody in the country has three or six months of savings, then yeah, it's hard to get through one of these things and very, very expensive, but, but definitely but do it. very yeah. different than if most people have only a couple of hundred dollars in their, in their checking account. And are in, in complete yeah. freefall if the tiniest thing goes wrong, and that's the biggest problem that we face. And that was a and that was one hundred percent a consequence of the economic policies we employed. Sure, making it that is neoliberalism, yeah, making it easy, easy, easy to borrow and harder to save, and yet. 
I mean, if we if we had that, I mean, we've become so conditioned. I wonder whether you can turn it around. If you had that money sitting in your bank account, you would spend it, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. particularly if you're on a lower income, because you've become accustomed to that, that sure. way of operating. For sure. But, but, but if you... But, but, sorry, think of the macro level, Phil. If everybody has a large amount of money in their accounts, which is, which is regenerated by the state, um, and circulating in the economy if you spend it comes back you have a circulating system you need you need what what you really need is to have everybody having substantial positive net equity okay now if you if you're thinking in terms of assets minus liabilities equals equity which is the fundamental law of accounting that applies to everybody if you have just privately created money Banks are required to have positive equity, otherwise they are bankrupt. That means the rest of society has negative equity. The way around that is you have to say what institution and society can cope with significant and permanent negative equity. And the answer is only an institution that owns its own bank. What's that? That's the government. So if the government created a large amount of money distributed to people through a, UB, a universal basic income type system, that spending of money would, not, even though you'd be spending it, it'd be coming back to you in various forms, various directions. And that would mean everybody had a financial monetary buffer, which the government absorbed because it can handle negative equity because it's owned its own bank. Now, if we're aware of that, we would never have gone for the madness of trying to tell the government, try to run a surplus, which, of course, means it takes money out of the private sector, which is doubly indebted, first of all, to the banks and then to the, the tax revenues exceeding government spending. So we've set up thing entirely in the wrong way, and we're now finding out the hard way just how deadly that is. Yeah, well, I wonder if we are finding it out, because, I mean, as I say, the approach in the UK seems to be, if you're short of money, we'll make it easy for you to borrow. Mm. And then, miraculously, we're going to come out the other end of this, and the economy is going to bounce back. How is the economy going to bounce back if everyone's deeper in debt? Indeed. I'll leave it handed over to Nick on this one as well, but that's the point. We've got yeah, a whole I mean, of contradictory uh, stupid policies. Yeah. I mean, look, here's the thing, is is the United States of America in 2017 pushed through about a $1.5 trillion tax cut, mostly for rich people and big corporations. That, that, yeah. that we, we ha- now, that was simply a, a giveaway to these people, right? We, so we effectively just did this at the scale of about $1.5 trillion. We conjured up that money and gave it to them uh, by simply lowering their rates, by simply lowering their rates. It's exactly the same as conjuring up the money and sending it to people. It's, these two things are exactly but, but the hang, same. But hang on a second, Nick. The whole idea, of course, we know, because uh, we're all following it so closely, the idea of those tax cuts for the rich people was that they were going to uh, use that extra money to invest, to create more jobs, and then the mm-hmm. revenue from those extra jobs was going to come back and cover yeah. all the yeah. losses from, that, from, those, from, that, from, those, from those extra exactly. tax cuts. And of course, how's that, that, how's that working out yeah, for him? Yeah, that's that was a lie. Of course, <laughs> as we all know, that was just a lie. Uh, the same trickle down lie. But um, but it does. But I, I mean, I just want to be very, very clear that the, the United States government did a thing like this two trillion dollar yeah. uh, uh, recovery a year ago, but in the form of a tax cut for rich people. And so. You know, like, so how are we going to pay for that last 
trillion and a half dollar tax cut. No idea. There was never any plan for paying that back. It was just it was just added to the added to the deficit. And now we're going to add another couple of trillion dollars to the deficit, which, by the way, relative to the size of the American economy is not that big a deal. Uh, It, of course, it was it was criminally stupid to give this tax cut to people last year. And, and by the way, it was me if I was in charge. I would be, I would be trying to pay for this $2 trillion with a, big, with a big tax increase on the wealthiest citizens in the United States right now. So I would be, I would, if, if, if I was in charge, I would impose a wealth tax on the wealthiest citizens to pay for the $2 trillion that we're going to distribute to everybody else. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Well, if I could, if I'm being your economic advisor, Nick, I'd be saying let's do it more cleverly than that. And that is that let's, let's dilute their, their wealth by creating additional money at the government level and distributing to everybody on an equal basis. Because there you, go. You, you, you know just how easily those rich bastards can evade their tax liabilities. Sure. Uh, but they can't evade a per capita distribution of money, which goes equally to everybody, including them, but it ends up diluting their ownership of the economy as a result. Yeah, that, and and I agree with that. That's not a bad idea. Now, that's how you get the government in, in deficit, which is what Steve was saying earlier. But, uh, but Nick, what about, uh, you know, some of that money being spent on health? Uh, clearly, we need to spend more. And yet, if you look at the United States, the United States is spending twice as much as the UK per capita and twice as much uh, of uh, the Australian population per capita on health. Uh, and yet, you know, look at the uh, the, the length of people live longer uh, in Australia and the UK, much longer than they do in, in the United States. So something's not right there. Look, and the attitude in the UK is very different as well. We love the National Health Service in the UK. In fact, they asked uh, a, a day ago for National Health volunteers to help through this crisis. They got half a million people in 24 hours. Oh, that is volunteering. Cool. I know, pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, um, the, the upshot of all of this yeah. is it's going to be impossible now for any government to come along and make cuts to the National Health Service like we've been seeing over the last decade here. Do you think yeah. the attitude is going to change towards government services in America as a result of all I of hope this? So. I mean, the American healthcare system is basically the, the world's largest price fixing scheme. Uh, that's the only way to really understand it. And, um, you know, hopefully enough Americans will have the crap scared out of them uh, so that they will demand change. Uh, but it, you know, who knows? Explain a bit more about how you you see it as a price fixing scheme. Oh, that's just what it is. I mean, it, 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 it's this elaborate, complex system designed to enrich the economic players uh, in the system rather than deliver price uh, effective healthcare to people. Uh, it's a classic case of where a so-called market arrangement doesn't work. Um, and there, you know, there's a role for the market in um, uh, obviously in, in, in biotechnology and healthcare and so on and so forth, but letting uh, private equity uh, uh, firms, um, you know, dominate the hospital business, for instance, is just, is just, idiotic how should it be arranged? So, and in, and in um, particular if we're looking at for example if, if we're looking at how to find the answer to the to the to the current virus if we're looking uh, for the cure for the coronavirus who should be doing that and how should it be paid for 
Oh, I mean, you know, there are a lot of private companies that do research and development on this stuff that I, I, I'm not saying eliminate private companies from the healthcare system, but obviously the funding for that should come from the federal government and people should pay the federal government to, to, to do, do these sorts of things. You know, I'm a, like, a, you know, I'm, I believe in the free market. It's just that the American healthcare system is an abomination. And, you know, and when people ask me, what, what should we do? Uh, my usual answer, and it sounds glib, but it's not, is uh, make a dartboard with the systems of the other 20 industrialized nations, stand back 10 feet, throw a dart, and just do whatever they're doing, <laughs> right? Like, just pick one. Pick can Canada, UK. Um, Australia's uh, got a pretty you know, good system. Yeah, Australia, mm. New Zealand, yeah. just any other healthcare system but our own. Maybe not That's Sierra Leone. Like, yeah, I mean, like, like in terms of the Australian system, having experienced the UK and the Australian uh, and, and, and seeing the European ones in operation as well. It was a very sensible scheme brought in by the Whitlam government in 1972-3, uh, which had uh, the, the, the individual pays 85% of the cost of any service, uh, sorry, pays 15% of any cost of any service, and the state pays 85%. And it was also possible for uh, individual uh, medical providers to agree to just accept the 85%, therefore charging the private person nothing. Uh, um, and you can, if you want to get, uh, if you have a, you know enough money, you can pay for private surgery or private treatment to get you ahead of the overall public system. But the idea was that everybody had health care because health care is one of these classic things that economists talk about and then bloody well ignore, and that's a public good. Uh, and with the classic instance we're seeing now of how decent healthcare is a public good is that the most recent prominent victim of the coronavirus is Prince Charles. Mm. So this is one case where the wealthy should be paying to avoid the costs of shaking hands with somebody who's poor who's got a disease they're going to pick up. And this is one case where the whole idea that private provision is better every, every since is simply wrong. Yeah, I'm just, I- yeah, I'm sure absolutely. it's being uh, well looked after, mind you. <laughs> so, um, question question for both of you: um, what What do you think will change at the end of this? I'm going to put it out there first that I don't think anything's going to change because I think we'll get to the end of this and everyone will say, uh, "Oh, that was a, a once in a hundred year event, uh, so we don't need to worry about it for another hundred years." Nick, what do you reckon? Golly. Uh, you know, I, I always am reminded of uh, the the. Are you guys acquainted with the American uh, social critic H. L. Mencken? Did a lot Mention, of very Mention. smart and funny things. Yes. Um, yeah, he said, yeah. "Never underestimate the stupidity of the American public." Yeah. <laughs> he also said that there's no um, no to every human problem. There's a simple solution, which is neat, plausible, and wrong. Yeah. And that, that pretty much characterizes the neoclassical economic theory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, think, I, think I don't know. Is, I'm hoping yeah. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that Americans conclude that the people who told them that government uh, should be small enough so you can drown it in a bathtub are frauds and that, and that we, we do have an interest in what we do collectively uh, together and that our government should be well-funded and strong and capable and that they conclude that economic policies that enrich the few and 
uh, impoverish the many, uh, make no sense for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but when you're dying, uh, th- it's even more vivid. <laughs> and, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and that, you know, it makes the country, um, you know, more sensible and less libertarian. Yeah. I, I'm going to put an, another curly out there, and I think this is, this is just a warm-up. I mean, I think it's incredible that all this stuff that happened in a year called 2020, when we associate 2020 with vision and hindsight. In hindsight, mm. would we have done what got us to where we are now? The answer is no effing way. Um, something was seriously wrong with the direction we led society into it. This happens. And the thing is, as soon as we relax from it, something else is going to come along because what we've done is allow humans to completely dominate this planet as if the rest of it is just a sideshow we don't actually need to worry about uh, when, in fact, it's, it's the environment in which we manage to survive. So I've uh, been looking at, you know, going way, way back, looking at the work of the group called The Limits to Growth, which has been derided and and rubbished by conventional economists uh, who got they could accuse anybody who points out the dangers that which coronavirus is an example as being a malthusian but the reality is they're what were called panglossians they can see no problem at all in this absolutely perfect system and push you further and further into such stage that it ends up doing what it's doing right now which is breaking down we had the fires in australia uh, at the beginning of the year uh, then we had floods in Australia, as it happens. Now we have coronavirus. Mm. California is going to have fires again this year. Uh, all this stuff. We've got locust plagues in Africa. Add yeah, that to yeah. the list. And th- these are things which can be traced not to just to say to global warming and climate change. They can be traced to the pressure that humans are putting upon this planet, you know, on which they are the peak predator. Now I've seen there's some interesting research very recently to try to say how much of the mass of the planet. Is, is devoted to different species and that measuring us in terms of the carbon content of different species. Now, uh, plants make up 450 gigatons. A lot of those plants, of course, being ones we breed for our own use, but that's plants. Humans make up a mere, animals make up a mere two gigatons. When you take a look inside that two gigatons, humans are 0.06 gigatons. Wild animals, the ones we go to look at in zoos and we, we, we you know, associate with Africa and so on, they're 0.007 gigatons. So we, as, as mammals, are 10 times the mass of the wild animals that we like to look at in zoos and on David Attenborough um, uh, documentaries. Our livestock are 0.1 gigaton. That's 20 times what we are. So we end up being 96% of the mammalian mass of the planet. And we've done all that, believing we can continue doing it indefinitely. Well, sorry, guys, if we become any more of the mass of the planet, it, there's not going to be a remainder of it to keep us alive. So, and that's that's the situation we've got into. Okay, so one question to, to finish with then. If, we, if we're going to drive change, and it sounds like we need to, uh, to stop this happening again, but also, as you say, the, the bigger issue about how we save the planet, just that small, that small job, how can we do that? Uh, as a series of nations working independently, because we've we've been through a good five or ten years where the word sovereignty has been, has been overused. We've got a, an American president who's very much America first. Uh, th- this has forced us to, uh, you know, you would have hoped to cooperate uh, around the world, uh, but it, it, perhaps it would have been better if we'd cooperated more. But certainly to tackle climate change, we need to see more cooperation. Uh, are, are we going to be smart enough to come out of this and think, we, uh, hey, yeah, we need to do more of that from now on. Uh, Nick, I'll start with you. 
Yeah, I mean, because because uh, let me let me say this: the country that's probably going to least be least cooperative is the one that you're sitting in. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, again, I, I, like I said before, I am hopeful that uh, this, if there's a silver lining to this crisis, it will be that people take these uh, r- risks uh, much more seriously and um, and uh, and. Uh, gain a perspective on the need to address problems before they become crises uh, more seriously. Mm. Yeah. That, you know, that's the best case scenario. And um, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. Absolutely. Steve, have you got hope that that's the way we're going to go? Um, I, I think we're going to realize that we have to have a, a focus upon resilience rather than just efficiency. If anybody comes out and talks about this is more efficient, they're going to be saying, yeah, but what about resilience? Now, that's that's a change. That's going to be pushed back to the whole neoliberal agenda. Yeah, so I see I that agree. as a possibility. I agree. Uh, and, but I think what, if you think, when you think about this geopolitically, uh, this, this virus, of course, began in China. And China was initially castigated for... Quite, quite rightly, but concealing that it was happening, concealing that there were human-to-human transmission cases rather than just animal-to-human. In fact, the country I'm sitting in right now, Thailand, uh, and, and also Taiwan were two countries that identified this early on, and they were, they were dismissed by the, uh, by the Chinese who were trying to suppress it, and apparently the World Health Organization sided with the Chinese on the basis of the need to maintain global trade. Uh, I, I didn't know the WHO was also the WTO, but that's how they behaved initially. Um, so there have been amazing failings now. But what's happening in China? We've already been seeing, first of all, the horrific outbreak, and then we've been seeing equally horrific lockdown approaches, literally in, uh, at, the, at the basic level. Uh, the directive to isolate people was interpreted by local Communist Party officials as, as weld up their apartment blocks so they can't get out. Uh, that's going to be brutal but it's already given China an incredibly flat trajectory in the disease levels. And ultimately, there may be far fewer deaths in China than there were in the rest of the world, including America. Mm. Now, the yeah, moment, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. un- unequivocally true. Well, yeah. I mean, Italy, yeah. Italy, what that means, Italy and Spain have already yeah. surpassed. And yeah, the United States is not yeah. far behind, though. Absolutely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, the Chinese did yeah. it right. And that's, and that's going to validate a strong state, um, for, at least for yeah. the Chinese themselves. They're going to say, yes, having a strong state is better than the Western system. So yeah. in terms of what's going to come out of this stronger, it's actually going to be the status systems, which which their citizens have more faith in. So Chinese yeah. will end up right. having more faith in China and Americans having less faith in America. Jesus, I'm yep. uh, I'm out to look for the local council worker who's uh, welding up my front door now. I'm uh, <laughs> got me petrified. Look, I really <laughs> yeah. wished uh, we'd had you on when we could have talked about something uh, more uh, fun, uh, perhaps more fun, perhaps ah. a little less severe. Okay. Uh, maybe we could have talked talked about the underlying topics without having this virus hanging over us. Yeah, but look, okay. uh, it'd be great to have you on. Can we get you on again sometime soon? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and thank you. Thank okay, you. take care. Bye, Nick Hanauer and Steve. Steve Keen, of course. By the way, uh, Nick has a weekly podcast as well called Pitchfork Economics, which is almost as good as the Debunking Economics podcast. If you like this, you're going to love that podcast too. Uh, We'll be back again with another one fairly soon. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.